Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com live. Flashes it away through the covers for four, and England have won the match. Hello, and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. I'm back from Dubai, where I was launching a new platform looking at the future of cricket, and I was also checking out the IPL as well. And later in this program, we are going to look at the future of the game and how it might be shaped by analytics and statistics even more. And it is now with an interview with Billy Bean, the famous character from the Moneyball film and book. But much more interesting, initially, we want to talk about the Ashes because England have announced their squad. And also, of course, it looks much more certain that the Ashes is now going to take place with various guarantees to the players and their families, which is very reassuring for everybody because we really are looking forward to it. But Simon, what do you make of the squad? Well, no real surprises, I, w- I would say, Yoz, wouldn't you? I mean, you look at the squad, it's almost picked itself. No Joffre Archer, no Ben Stokes. I think we knew that. Well, we definitely knew there was no Joffre Archer. We pretty had a big hunch that there was going to be no Ben Stokes. So they're not there. Stokes not there again. He wasn't there last time. Can you remember the, the furore around him, him not going last time? And the problems that caused England, lack of balance in their side. It's going to be the same situation uh, this time. And you know, all the players, 15 of the players, played in the test matches in the summer, apart from the two spinners, where England look a little bit thin on spin. But how are they going to get them in the side? That, that, that's one of the issues. When you, when you look at sort of the balance of the squad, they've got the, the, the six pace bowlers, but only the one really fast bowler. So it's going to be, it looks like it, it's going to be bowling dry, and hoping that they can get enough runs and, and can Joe Root sort of hold the batting together again? Or is he going to get some support? Is, are two or three players going to stand up and, and, and really support him? That, mm. That's how I saw the squad anyway. You know, it was, it was, they, they talked about 18, 19. In the end, they've gone for 17, which is a sort of normal Ashes number. 
and they're going to have players there from the Lions helping with the preparation. So there'll be another raft of names uh, picked. And one of those, of course, might be Liam Livingston, who we're going to hear from a bit later in this podcast. He's been speaking, uh, well, you were in Dubai, you were there, and speaking to us from Dubai in the Virtual Cricket Club. We've got lots of interesting things to say about various things. But, I mean, is, is that how you saw the, the Ashes party? I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not exactly a, a party, and, and it never was going to be, really, to, to frighten the Australians in their own backyard. <laughs> Various uh, predictions already with 4-0, 5-0 to Australia uh, being the, the most prominent ones. I, I suppose that there weren't many options for England with the key players that you mentioned being ruled out. What they lack is pace and I also think height, actually. Uh, and again, that's something that sort of just was, was they were restricted in, in the options they had. But if you look at the Australian attack, Josh Hazelwood and Mitchell Stark are very tall and particularly Hazelwood gets a lot of bounce. And so does Pat Cummins, who's got that speed as well as aggression and, you know, makes the ball rise up into the chest sort of area. And I just don't feel England have that kind of bowling attack. And I know that it worked in the 2010-11 Ashes where, you know, the likes of people like Tim Bresnan and Jimmy Anderson took lots of wickets, but they did have a Chris Tremlett there. And I feel that, you do need somebody with a bit more bounce and sort of menace. And I think Mark Wood, who is the obvious uh, exception in that he's fast, is short. And shorter bowlers in Australia are less successful. Uh, you know, you need someone with the height as well as the pace to really discomfort Australian batsmen on flat pitches. So I suppose what I worry about is that the, the sameness of the bowling attack, they're all, apart from Wood, around 80, 82 miles an hour. None of them, apart from Molly Robinson, are young either. And, you know, Australia gets hot. It gets very tiring, apart from the Adelaide Test, which is going to be a day-night game. You know, a lot of those Test matches are going to be played in the absolute teeth of Australian summer, especially after Christmas where, you know, they'll be playing in Sydney and Perth in January, where it can get to 35, 40 degrees. You need to be fit. You need to be resilient. And you need to have that little bit extra that you can provide or produce sort of late in the day uh, and, and sort of extra thrust with that second new ball kind of thing. And I just don't feel England have that. Um, Australia are not a, a brilliant side either. You know, their bowling is excellent, but their batting is flawed. So there is opportunity. I just don't feel England quite have the bowling attack or, or the team really to take that opportunity. No, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to disagree. I don't disagree. So you think 6-0 rather than 5-0, they're not yours from, from what you just said? Well, yeah. I mean, England could pinch a game somewhere, but I don't know. I mean, Australia will be so hungry having not played any test cricket for eight months. And, you know, they know their conditions obviously very well. I mean, a little bit will depend on the fitness of their three fast bowlers, but they have got people in reserve. They've got other quick bowlers that they can call up. But I don't really think England have. The, the two guys they would have wanted, Joffre Archer and Ollie Stone, are both injured. And Mark Wood, well, I'm sure will, will try gamely to compensate, but I just don't feel he quite has the, the assets that you need in Australia. You, know, you talk about height. I mean, they've got Craig Overton and they've got Ollie Robinson, who are sort of, you know, six foot five. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Overton perhaps just a bit, bit, but do they have that sort of extra pace as well that, no. that you, you might need? So that they've got height, but they, but the, as you say, they're sort of 80, 82 miles an hour. Listen, Robinson will bowl well in Australia, yeah. I'm sure, but yeah. I just don't see him 
taking five for five for 50 or, you know, taking big hauls, he'll get wickets and he'll bowl very economically, but I just don't feel that he'll get stacks of wickets. Who, who else could they have picked? I mean, well, yeah, that's the problem, isn't I mean, it? I mean, Saki Bermoud, he looked, looked yeah. prom- promising in the summer. He, he's not been selected. He's going to be around, isn't he, in the, in yeah. the, in the uh, Lions, Lions squad. So, yeah, I mean, it, it might be worth giving him a go at some point. Uh, you know, he's unproven, isn't he? That's the thing. So the, the bowling, <laughs> the bowling looks a bit samey. And, yeah. and and what about the batting? I mean, Joe Root is you know, it's a cliche, isn't it? Head, head and shoulders above them, but it but it's it's sort of true statistically. He's, he's so far ahead of of mm. everybody else. And then it is well, who, who's who's going to get the runs? Well, yeah, I, I think I think Milan will be all right um, unless Nathan Lyon starts to exert his influence on him. But uh, I do worry. Yeah, apart from Root and Milan. I worry about the batting as well. Yeah. Um, with no Stokes at number five, which is a massive loss. Um, Ollie Pope, very good, talented young player, but hasn't played in an Ashes series before. Um, uh, you know, it, both he and Hamid play what I'd say quite low. So they tend to get hit on the gloves a bit more than some players, which will happen more in Australia. Rory Burns will get absolutely peppered with short pitch bowling. I think Root will as well. So it's not going to be easy. And, and they, they look, I mean, they look a bit thin on spin as well. I mean, we mentioned yeah, very and, much uh, so. and, and the catching, the catching has not been great as well. Should we so, stop now and just well, say, call, well, it, call it five nil Australia so, already. <laughs> are, are we saying this England team can't bat, can't bowl and can't field? <laughs> In which case they'll win the Ashes, of course. Well, well of course it goes back to that, that famous uh, newspaper quote from, from Martin Johnson. The only three things wrong with this England team before the 86, 87 Ashes series is they can't bat and they can't bowl and they can't field. And of course, you know what happened. Uh, they took all before them, didn't they? In the one day as well as the, the test series, uh, Mike Gatting side winning 2-1 in Australia in 86, 87. Uh, I, I, I agree with you about you know, Australia's batting's a bit thin, but I mean, I, they have got Labuschagne, they have got Smith, and I quite, I, I quite like this is a sort of early, early Ashes tip towards Cameron Green. I quite, I quite like him at number six. I don't, I don't think he's taken a Test wicket yet, but he's shaped quite well with the bat, and he, he's one of those sort of up and coming stars. He's anyway, he's someone to to keep an eye on. Okay, it'll be his first Ashes series, but I, I wonder whether he might um, have a bit of an influence on the series. And and I, I agree with you. If if two or three of their quick bowlers were injured, then that obviously undermines them quite significantly. Um, and they, they, yeah, they do have players in reserve but will they have that sort of experience and that quality to, to come in and, and do well straight away so th- yeah there is that they do have they do have a quality uh, attack but if you know are they all going to stay fit because they, they you know they have done in the past in in the recent past but it ain't necessarily so it's always going to happen so that you know there, there are some variables mm. but you know england have traditionally done very poorly in australia you know in, in our in my and our living memory you know Ashes series wins in Australia have been very, very few and far between, 86, 87, 2010, 11. And amidst that, there's been 78, 9, when all the Australian players are out, you know, playing for, for Kerry Packer. Uh, there have been a lot of shellackings on the way, and England lost <laughs> nine of their last 10 tests in Australia. You know, that, you know, and, and that is that is the degree of difficulty. I saw sense with the Australians a little bit, you know, yeah, get, yeah, come on, get the tour on, get the, get the palms down and let, let's give them a good beating and sort of give it, you know, lift, lift morale and all that sort of stuff. I, I, it, we, we don't care who you send, you know, we'll beat you anyway. Uh, there's, there's, there's been a lot of that uh, going on. Let's get, get this tour on. 
uh, you know, get get rid of the memories of that Indian series uh, last summer in Australia. Let's, let's get the palms down and and. And the thing is, uh, you know, you're right. India did win that series. That's twice yeah. they've beaten Australia at home, but they had an absolute battery of fast bowlers and also, you know, a lot of young, good, young, talented batsmen as well. And, you know, someone like Rishad Pant playing, you know, daring innings, you know, that I suppose that, you know, that, that throws the, the baton down to, to somebody like Joss Butler. Mm. Can he play a, a Rishad Pant type innings in a run chase in Brisbane or somewhere? He's got the skills. Has he got the, the belief to do it? I mean, you know, he could, it could be, could it be the making of Joss Butler this tour, you know, where he comes in at number six or seven and takes the game away from Australia, like Adam Gilchrist used to do for Australia. That, that, that's an opportunity. Uh, but, you know, it's just, will the kind of environment be, uh, be right for England? You know, will they sort out all these kind of family issues and the bubble stuff and feel comfortable and feel, you know, that they can really perform at their best? Well, let's hope so. But no guarantees. No, I think belief is quite an interesting uh, word to use. Uh, this England party, I mean, every, everyone seems to have written them off, uh, both uh, certainly in Australia. <laughs> and, and you know, we, we're pretty realistic as well about England's chance. I wonder what the belief is among the, the England players. I have just lost 2-1 home to India, and they were beaten by New Zealand as well, two, two very good sides, admittedly, but both, you know, winning in England, where England are normally strong, although, of course, that fifth test wasn't played. So ultimately, we don't totally know the outcome of the India series. But India were 2-1 were up. So do England go there with belief? And you're right, they're, they're all the, the playing conditions as well, the off-field playing conditions. I don't mean the playing conditions in the match, the off-field playing conditions that they're going to, to live under. And a lot of the players it will be in, in the uh, T20 World Cup as well. And, you know, some of them come out of the IPL. What one of those? What are the players actually not selected uh, for this tour? And there are a few people I've seen who say they should have been selected because of his sort of aggressive approach. He's got a bit of mongrel. Is Liam Livingstone's been playing in the IPL? Hasn't had a great time of it, uh, really, with the Rajasthan Royals. But um, there've been quite a few Rajasthan Royals players who haven't had a great time of it over the last uh, few weeks. Liam Livingstone, not not picked. You're their bogey man, aren't you? You're their <laughs> bogey on the commentary. You're, every time you're on commentary, they go to about twelve for four. Yeah, well, I did. Well, I think that's to do with them. Yours, not not so much to do with me. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, but anyway. So it may well be that Liam Livingstone is picked in the in the Lions party, maybe. But he's not, and he he talks actually about his his red ball ambitions uh, versus his his white ball ambitions when he joined us on the the virtual cricket club. He also talked about that six at Headingley and the distance it, it travelled. But we started asking by, you know, what, what's it been like uh, playing in this IPL bubble? What's it been like for the players? Because, of course, it's, you know, it, it is an issue. England's players are going to have it in the T20 World Cup. They're going to have it in the Ashes as well. So what's it been like for him? Sometimes it can get very difficult to be able to do enough different things to sort of stop getting bored. Thankfully, during this bubble, we've been allowed to sort of branch out and play on golf courses away from the hotel. We've got a nine-hole golf course on the hotel that we can um, we can play, and pretty much we just turn up. The buggies are already there, everything's sanitised, and we sort of go um, sort payment out at the end, and then head off back to the hotel. Or uh, in the case of the nine-hole golf course here, we just hop back uh, in a buggy straight back to the hotel. So it's pretty much training days, days off his golf days and game days and it's pretty much you don't even live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's it's pretty much match day, rest day uh, or game day and 
um, or training day, sorry. So that's pretty much the the IPL lifestyle at the moment. Um, it's a bit of a shame that we can't get out and especially in Dubai where the restaurants are so good. Um, it's always nice mm. to sort of branch out and eat some different food and, and things like that, which um, is a little bit disappointing, but it's obviously the times we're living in at the moment. I'm just going to say, I mean, I'm in the same hotel in a, se- a separate section. And I mean, I've only been here four days. We're obviously much freer than you, but I'm already kind of going nuts. If I had the prospect of being stuck here for 10 days and all I could do was go to a cricket ground and come back, I think I would go nuts. I, I think I see why the, the bubble security thing does, it does pose problems. Some people have sort of had a had an opinion on it that I haven't really done it. And I think it's a very, it's a hard thing to talk about if you haven't experienced it. And don't get me wrong, we're very privileged. We're living our dream. We're traveling the world playing cricket, but I pretty much spent of 365 days, I had about 325 in a hotel room as COVID hit from the start of the England bubble during COVID, um, right the way through the big bash, whatever I played that winter. So uh, that's where the problem comes is living out of a suitcase, eating meals in hotel rooms, just sort of losing that normal way of life. And that's why being back in England this summer was actually a pretty refreshing. Although we were sort of restricted on what we should and shouldn't do, there was a little bit more freedom of being able to go to a coffee shop and sit outside or go to a restaurant and eat food outside. And them little differences make a massive difference to the sort of the bubble life, but people don't quite um, don't quite understand it until you've been in it. And what have I, I've been here now, I did six days quarantine and maybe two weeks, and I'm already sort of on the verge of just losing the plot. But it's something that I'm used to now, and I guess you're kind of learning to live with the mental fatigue of living in a bubble is something that I guess mm. us as cricketers have, have, have learned to live with. And I guess the exciting part is we've got a World Cup to look forward to, and um, we've obviously had IPL, so it's it's probably the two best competitions around. And the restrictions that you, you were talking about just now, that they will be in place, will they, for the next four, five weeks until until the end of the T20 World Cup? Yeah, I think so. I don't think it's going to change. Um, but like I said before, I think just having that little break of, of being able to play golf or, or something like that on a day off gives you that sort of feel of a bit of freedom of being able to get out of the hotel and get out of... And I guess spending so much time with the same people, it's the same, like if I spend too much time at home, I get annoyed with my mum and dad. It's exactly the same thing as as being out here and you sort of spend so much time with the same people. It's nice sometimes to just get away and to, I don't know, if you're usually in Dubai, you can go and meet a couple of friends that you know here or, or whatever it is. So it, it sounds as though you're, you're being a bit spoiled and being a bit of a spoiled brat, but it's, it is, it can just sort of wear you down a little bit without you realizing. So um, just the little freedoms that we get. And um, I think the hotel that we're staying in for the world cup is where Chan and I have been for the, for the IPL and Mo and Sammy have said it's, it's brilliant. It hasn't been the easiest IPL, has it? I mean, t- tough for batsmen, actually. What would you have learned from it as a, a player kind of you know obviously you've got the advantage of playing here which some players haven't before the world t20 i mean a do you think the pitches will be different and b what have you kind of gleaned from them i hope the pitches will be different yeah yeah i bet you do (laughs) no i think 
the experience that we'll have gained will be vital going into a, a camp pre-World Cup. I think the knowledge and experience that the lads that have played some IPL cricket over here will be invaluable to the lads that haven't played. Why are they I difficult? Guess, can you explain? Can you explain what the problem is? I think each venue has posed different threats. Your natural instinct to a short back of a length ball is to play with a cross bat, but when the ball bounces knee high off that length, to try and play that with a straight bat, you'd usually be wearing it in your face. So it's such a hard thing that you've always grown up to play that length with a cross bat is to then try and play with a straight bat it becomes really difficult. Mm. I guess Sharjah has been really low and slow, which then makes hitting boundaries really tough. But there's an opportunity to do that while the ball's still really hard. So you've basically got three, four, five overs to get as many as you can before it becomes difficult. Dubai has been very different. Some games have been really steep bounce with loads of grass left on the pitches because I guess they're trying to make them last a bit longer. And then when the grass comes off, they become really slow. So it's hard to predict what the pitch is going to be like until you've played on it. If you go too hard, you end up 20 for three on a pitch that 130 would be a good score. But then if you don't go hard enough on the pitch that we played Chennai on in Abu Dhabi, they got 190 and we could have chased it down in 15 overs if we'd have wanted to. So that's where the, I guess it's all mm. about trying to be as smart as you can, mm -hmm. as quickly as you can and try and read conditions as, as quickly as possible. And I honestly do believe the teams that do best in the World Cup will be the teams that adapt um, and sort of recognise conditions as quickly as possible. I mean, England obviously are one of the favourite teams, uh, but they, they quite like you know, those sort of traditional flat T20 pitches. Do, do you think, do you, I mean, could that be a problem, do you think? I don't know. Yeah, I guess we're used to playing on really good pitches wherever we go, mostly in the world, um, especially at home. We play on really good pitches. And I guess it's going to test our skill set of being able to get scores and chase down scores on these types of pitches. But I honestly believe we've got a very good bowling attack as well that are going to pose problems on these pitches, especially someone like Rash, who's been around and seen the last sort of two weeks of the IPL will be a massive bonus for us that he'll have. Although he hasn't played that much, he'll have been around and seen and, and experienced the pitches. Um, and I guess Morgs is the same. Morgs has obviously played every game for KKR. So it kind of gives you a little bit of a head start and gives you, um, yeah, I guess you kind of know what's coming. So, yeah, like you said, I don't know if it's going to pose a problem. I guess it's it's a different challenge to what we usually face if we were playing a World Cup back home. But, um, yeah, I guess it's going to test our skill set. But I do believe that we've got very well-balanced squad we've got um we've got pretty much every base covered and yeah I mm. reckon it's the team it's a team that probably plays the smartest cricket not the most explosive cricket that'll win I was at the 100 final and Mark Nicholas and I were in a box actually and a couple of your sixes went quite near out near us and we said when you and Moen were batting um against um Mark Mills Garton and uh, Jordan we, we thought it was some of the most exciting cricket 15 minutes of cricket, then you got run out with an amazing piece of fielding. I mean, it was some of the most exciting cricket we've ever seen, Mark Nicholas and I. We've, you know, we've been see, seen a fair bit of cricket. Some of those shots you hear are just ridiculous. My, my kids are looking at it going, how does he do that? So how do you do it? The biggest change that I've made is trying to get in a consistent base where I can hit the ball as far as I can consistently, which I've managed to do over the summer. 
I think I've been blessed with a really good swing and bat flow to be able to hit the ball further. I've got long levers and I guess I use my body really well to hit the ball. And I guess it's probably something that does me no good in first class cricket, but helps me a lot like that position where I'm pretty much swinging horizontally to hit straight is no good if the ball's nipping away from you with, with a red duke. So I guess it's having that skill set to know that that's the way to go. In red ball cricket, it is exactly what you do not want. Fully mm. square on and you've dropped your back knee, which basically is the worst position you could probably get into if you're playing a red ball game. So I guess it's sort of understanding that um, white ball cricket is kind of turning into a little bit more of a power hitting game than what um, than what red ball cricket is. And I guess working on it, trying different things that some things may work, some things may not work, trying different things out, trying to hit the ball with a long back flow through the ball, trying to use your wrist to open up different areas. How do you yeah, practice that? Because I've, I've been to um, I've been to Julian Woods um, power hitting club or you know school in Berkshire. Took my daughter down there, and he uses um, big bats, you know, bigger heavy bats and heavier balls, and he gives you a hurling stick to get your wrists through as well. Have you done that, or do you do that kind of thing? Mm, I did one session with him during a, a Lions thing, but that's all I've really had with with Woody. Most of it is honestly trial and error and just trying to work on, and I guess going around in the franchise stuff, going and playing, going and playing at Rajasthan with Joss to then going and playing at Cape Town with Quinton de Kock, going and playing at, I don't know, Perth with Mitch Marsh. Everybody's got a different swing and sort of trying to learn how they hit the ball their own way and why they why they're so successful in how they do it. And then trying to see if you can bring any of that into your game and, and trying to use that in the net. And um, yeah, I guess sort of trial and error, um, help from coaches and watching Joss as a, as I don't know, maybe a 21, 22 year old just coming into, into white ball cricket and professional cr cricket. I got really wristy trying to hit balls with my wrists all the time. And I was wondering why I was slicing balls up in the air all the time. And, because basically I wanted to hit it like Joss. Um, and then all of a sudden you kind of bring everybody's sort of the learnings that you've had from everybody and you try and use it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work and you park it to one side. And all of a sudden you come up with your own brand of being able to, to hit a ball. And um, pretty much this summer, it felt like everything came together perfectly. And I basically went from game to game um, playing in a very similar way, in a very relaxed way. And, really enjoyed trying to go out there and entertaining people in a new brand of cricket. And I guess um, the hundred was probably the most satisfying thing for me was seeing kids wanting to, to get into cricket, wanting to watch cricket, wanting to come and buy the Birmingham Phoenix shirts or um, whatever it was, the Manchester original shirts. And I guess I actually seen um, service stations traveling to and from games. You see kids wearing the shirts like you do, Man United shirts with Ronaldo on the back. You'd see Birmingham Phoenix shirts with Mo and Ali on the back. And I guess that's mm. the sort of thing that we wanted to get from the 100. And I do honestly believe that us as players sort of played the brand of cricket that has gained interest in, in cricket. So hopefully it can go from strength to strength. But I do believe that um, it was actually a very good tournament. By the way, um, my daughter's at uni with uh, Chris Benjamin, Benji. And he speaks highly of the influence you had on that team and 
you know how good it was to work to work with you and you because because you're inspiring i know it sounds weird you're only young yourself but you are inspiring the next generation it's always nice to hear things like that because i would say the same to joss who i've mm. spent a little bit of time with i would say the same about stokes here and morgs and jayroy tim and smeedy were sort of two blokes that i spent quite a bit of time with away from the cricket as well and you talk about cricket you talk about different things and I guess that sort of experience that you've learned over the last three, four, five years, it's nice to be able to pass that knowledge on to, to other people. And I do believe that Benji's actually a real talent. And I do think mm. that he's going he's gonna to have a, a real future in the game, just like Tavidi will at, at Somerset. So um, I guess it's nice to pass on that sort of um, that knowledge and um, the experiences that you have until you then come up against them in county cricket. And they do really well against you, which I had with Benji getting 100 in the championship against us and then Smeedy right. knocking us out of the T20 quarterfinal <laughs> all within the same week. But even seeing things like that, we've lost two games or I don't think we lost against Warwickshire, but um, we drew the game. But it's nice to say, it's nice to see that the boys that you've spent time with and, and have talked to you about cricket and have come up to you and say, what do you think about this? It's always nice to be able to pass that on and then go and see them do well. How, how far did that six go, by the way? Has, has, any, has anyone ever told you how far it went, that, that one at Headingley? Don't, I don't think there was an actual measurement, but right. I think somebody measured it on Google Maps. 121.96 metres it was measured at. That's Albert Trot country, that. You know, that's the guy who hit the, the six over the Lawns Pavilion over in 1899. Lords, yeah. That's a special amazing. I mean, that is a phenomenal hit, isn't it? 100, I mean, you talk about it in the IPL, you know, someone hits one for 90... 90 meters people people say oh that's a you know that's a massive blow i know there's a, a bit of hyperbole around uh, the commentary on, on on the ipl is there, but, is, there, yeah. there is there a competition between batsmen because you know goffy always used to say he liked looking at the radar to count you know the speed to see if he was faster than devon malcolm and all that well i mean what about hit six hitting is there a bit of a sort of um macho club of people who say i've hit it further than you the amount of sixes is the rivalry between the batters but the length is, it's always the bowlers that think they hit it further than the batters. So you never have two batters saying that they, they hit bigger sixes than each other. So I always have it with Tom Curran. Tom Curran always says he hits the ball further than me. But it's a clear fact that he doesn't. So I always have these arguments with him. So yeah, it was nice actually, because Tom Curran was at the other end. And he actually, right. he actually said to me that he's hit one further than it. So it's always... Um, it's always nice. It's quite good fun to have a laugh as well. I wonder if that one's on Google Earth as well. Where, where did Tom, where, where did Tom go and hit that one then? Where, where did he where did he claim to have hit a bigger six than that 121 meter one? Sure. I have no idea. No. They're always in net sessions when no one's around. Ah, right. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't count. quite an interesting scenario actually with with Liam Livingston and and me if you like um during that interview or just before that interview because he was in one hotel in Dubai and I was in a neighboring hotel they were adjacent but we couldn't actually interact because the IPL players were all in their own enclosed bubble so actually there was an event one night where I interviewed players from the Rajasthan Royals and I was in one hotel (laughs) with a microphone and they were in another hotel just above on a wall sort of around their pool area. And I was just below 
in my dining area of the other hotel. So we were sort of interviewing each other across this sort of wall, almost. Uh, they, they had microphones as well. It was kind of a weird scenario, but it, I suppose, encapsulated how kind of isolated they have to be. And, and it worked, you know, and I interviewed Sangakara and a couple of other people, and Liam Livingston was around as well. But, as, you know, as I say, it does illustrate the fact that they can't live normal lives, and it is strange. Anyway, I mean, I, I, t- I paid a visit to Sharjah uh, for one match, um, the, the IPL game between the Mumbai Indians and the Rajasthan Royals. What a shabby little stadium that is. It's, it's, it's a nice, interesting area, Sharjah, actually. And of course, it was a, a former airport, the, um, the Sharjah International Cricket Stadium, and the RAF started playing cricket there in the 1940s during the war, and eventually it became, there's nothing to do for them. I had a great letter once from an RAF man, uh, an airman who'd been stationed in Sharjah in the war and started playing cricket was there nothing to do on the, on the airfield, and of course, eventually it's evolved into a cricket ground. Anyway... Um, the IPL has sort of moved forward, hasn't it, in, in its uh, progress in its second half. And I, I was compelled last night, as I'm sure you were, to to see the Chennai Super Kings and and Dhoni pulling it out of the fire again, uh, 13 off the last over. Tom Curran um, haplessly trying to stop the, the master finisher from doing the business. And he did it again. And Chennai are in their ninth final. They're an extraordinary story. Yeah, last time they didn't do particularly well and there were question marks over sort of the dad's army nature of their side and they need an auction and to, to regenerate. But yeah, through again, I actually wouldn't have given the last over to Tom Curran. I no, would I given, wouldn't. I would have given it to Rabada personally. I thought Curran bowled really well, but I just sensed that in a last over, Dhoni, you know, it was going to be a, a, a really difficult challenge uh, for him. And, yeah, he has been quite expensive uh, of late, Tom Curran. He sort of, he'd done his job. I felt he'd done his job really well up until then. Uh, Rishabh Pant said, well, he bowled well. You know, I, I trusted him for the final over. And, you, you know, you've got to have a hunch and, and, and go with Dhoni. But you, you've been out at, at the IPL. You've been talking to all sorts of people, uh, yours, and, and one of them, Billy Bean and, and Nathan Lehman. We, you've, been, you've been talking about data, haven't you? And mm. you've been at the Dubai Expo. What what's that experience been like? Oh, it's amazing. The Dubai Expo is it's like the size of practically Birmingham. I mean, it, it's certainly Coventry anyway. And uh, it's um, a set of uh, nearly two hundred pavilions, they call them, which each of which uh, advertises the development potential and investment opportunity in a different country. Uh, so, you know, there's a whole avenue of South American countries advertising their wares in each of their sort of particularly styled pavilions, which are like some of them are like office buildings. Some of them are like sort of futuristic um, architectural um, imaginations of, of, of kind of concepts from that country. And and some are like look like rockets. And I mean, it's a, it's a weird place, extraordinary place, enormous with its own bus terminal and and um its own railway station on the outskirts of dubai um always very glitzy and glamorous and um, very large um we took one space in there to uh, advertise a new platform uh, about the future of the game and it, it featured uh, this uh, in one of the things we featured in that uh, project or platform was an interview with billy bean and, and nathan lehman because you know, I, the IPL has sort of encapsulated uh, the way the game has changed and the increasing use of analysis, both in terms of selecting your team in an auction, 
picking your players and also selecting your team for a match and even batting orders and bowling lineups. Who do you put on at a particular time if a particular batsman's there? So the increasing use of data and statistics really governing how you run a game in the IPL. And that's what we we talked to, to, to Billy Bean and, and Nathan Lehman, who is, of course, England's head analyst about. Something Nathan Lehman uses, Yoz, is the Monte Carlo simulation. Uh, he talks about it in the interview. Do you want to just explain very briefly what that is for those people who don't know what the Monte Carlo simulation is? It's a way of predicting outcomes by feeding into a computer program all the matches uh, that have been played at a particular venue, for instance. So let's say uh, England are playing Australia at Headingley. Uh, he will feed in all the previous matches uh, that both England and Australia have played at Headingley and all the matches that other test teams may have played at Headingley as well over a, a period. And um, all the, the data involved in that match or those matches in terms of you know, who won the toss, who won the match, what were the sort of average scores in each innings, what were the weather conditions, you know, even what what teams, what who were the individuals in the in the teams, what were their statuses at the time. So, you know, a massive amount of data about each player and each team and each scenario, which then you press a you know a few buttons, obviously, you crunch the numbers, and out comes the possibilities for let's say if you're winning the toss tomorrow against Australia at Headingley, what's the best plan if the weather is such and such? Um, you know, what, when is going to be the best time to bat in the game and what are the sort of projected scores likely to be? So, you know, lots of stuff about, um, you know, who in, in terms of the IPL, it might be um, looking at a particular venue and two teams and what number overs you might be best suited to bat Ravi Jadeja if... Um, I don't know, um, Tom Curran was bowling. So, you know, it, it, there's, it, it's almost infinite, the amount of information that you can get from these simulations, which are essentially lots of match data fed into a, a big computer and giving you p possible, potential, probable outcomes. Okay, well, let's hear from them. Uh, Nathan Lehman eventually, but first, uh, Billy Bean, and his take is that data, well, you haven't seen anything yet. But right now, the team that goes in there and understands the value of data and can collect it independent of every other club has a huge advantage because once you have the data and you hire these smart guys, they can, there's so many uses. I feel proud of the fact that we were sort of one of the first ones out of the gate, but just like any business, there's other people that take it to the next level. And there's certainly baseball teams. We took it from a player evaluation and, and saying, listen, players are, are, are misvalued. We're not properly valuing the right skill sets and this data will tell us how. And then you had teams who were able to turn it into what I think some of what Nathan's doing now is, uh, is how does it help the player's performance, right? Right. At first, we didn't care about what the players thought. We just said, you're undervalued, you're overvalued. We think you're worth this. We think you're that. And we had a huge inefficiency in the market that we could exploit. Now teams like the Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays have now taken this information and been able to uh, communicate it to the players and have, have it have it 
an impact on a game by game basis, right? And and again, the gap in baseball versus I think it starts with the data, and and, and I'm sure Nathan would agree, is the only limits that that really smart people working for sports teams now have is the data. You give them a lot of data, and you give them more data, they're going to create better and more predictive models, and that's again what we're all trying to do. And again, the thing with Crick, one of the first things I noticed with Crick, and I'll I'll get off here for a sec, is that. The, 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 not only is the game somewhat similar, I mean, it's you know very similar in so many ways. The skill sets are the same. The personalities are the same, too. As I watch, you know, the, the, the many Netflix shows and things like that, but when I see the, uh, the locker room of a cricket team and I hear the banter, it's exactly the same as a baseball team. You just could take these, these young men from England and Australia and New Zealand or South Africa and you put them in, in the States and they would fit right in. The personalities... And the way they think about the game is very, very similar, which is why I think at some point you're really going to see a commingling of minds with cricket and baseball, because we essentially are looking for the same outcome. I think one of the things when I look at it from a, a layman's eyes, when I watch cricket is, you know, whether or not sort of like, for instance, there's a great paper that's like stealing signs, you know, predicting what a bowler is going to throw to a batsman, you know, through biomechanics, you know. I mean, there's guy tip pitches. There's things human beings will do when they're going to do something that will tip. I mean, if, if stuff like that's done in cricket. The other thing is really sort of uh, the, the the defensive positioning, how much science is put in the defensive positioning. You know, we've gotten to the point in baseball where we have created shifts in baseball in the last five years that basically have revolutionized the game and they were available to everybody for 150 years. But data had told us we were putting fielders in the wrong spot and now the game has completely changed as a result of this. And my, my what I say to that is that really smart guys basically told everybody else, you guys have been really dumb for 150 years. This is what you should have been doing. And it's been so dramatic on its impact. So, so Nathan, Billy mentioned fielding there and fielding in baseball. Is that an area that perhaps is untapped data-wise in cricket? Yes and no. I mean, just because of the, the structure of the game, there's, there's always been a lot more focus on fielding positions and, and moving fielders for different batsmen and different bowlers. And so that is, that's, been, that's always been a part of the, the game. So that introduction of, of, of moving your fielders around into different positions for different scenarios, and that might be new in, in baseball, but just because of the history of the game isn't in cricket. There's, there's two halves to the to the use of of data in sport what one is economics use finding undervalued assets in a marketplace because I started with England that side of things was never really available to me so we didn't operate in a marketplace we were allowed to pick who we wanted and if we were short of fast bowlers we couldn't go and buy Dale Stain off South Africa there's a sort of equivalent in terms of we have a limited number of caps a limited number of appearances to, to invest in players and invest in in developing players etc so there's there's a sort of analogous argument there but it, it's it has nothing of the power that you have in a uh, in a commercial sport where you can buy and sell players so so the the, the part we always focused on was was the performance side of things um, because that was where we could use the data um, and that's the, that's the other reason that t20 cricket has caused this explosion of of the use of data in cricket because most T20 cricket is played in commercial leagues where you buy and sell players and therefore the, the valuing of, of players is much more important because if, if you ask 10 good judges who should be in England's 15-man squad for the World Cup you would get the same 12 names and then they would differ over the last three but if you ask 10 good judges 
who who are the best 10 value players or the best 15 value players in the IPL auction next year, you'll get a completely different set of set of answers. And, and, and that's where there's there's a, a huge scope for the use of data that we, that we haven't had in cricket before the introduction of T20 cricket. Listen, in any business, properly pricing the assets is the most important thing. It's you know, like the one of the reasons I became interested in European football. When I make a trade in baseball, if I value a player at a certain level and another team doesn't, but to transact, I have to get a bilateral negotiation. I have to get you to agree to trade me that player. One of the great things about European football is I basically just have to value that player. Theoretically, this is not that simple, $1 more than my competitors. And if I've got a better way to evaluate players, there's a huge opportunity. One of the teams, again, not to digress into another sport, but you talked about gambling, but if you look at the success of Brentford Football Club and you look at the success of Brighton as well, two, two owners who came from the gambling. I mean, you know, and I am pretty familiar with some of their, you know, Michelin as well, which is what uh, they're, they're making decisions based on this data and information. And they're pricing it, not, you know, they're, they're pricing it properly at the outset, but then they're also turning on you know, football. The other thing you can do is turn it into a more valuable asset by the sell-on. But again, pricing, and I say, I use that respectfully, assets being the players and the player's talent. That is the most important thing in any sport is properly pricing. And the great thing you have in a cricket auction is that you you know you basically have a pool of money to you know base most people have you have a pool of money and how you allocate that you can actually I, again i think that uh there's a real opportunity to exploit some things and that's where the math come in and the and the uh and the gambling guys well that's billy bean and, and nathan lehman so yours do you think data is is more use for franchise cricket t20 cricket ipl cricket that sort of thing than say test match cricket where you're actually as nathan lehman was saying there you're, you're sort of limited Mm. about who you can pick you can only pick players of a certain qualification you know, ostensibly players born in england or with english qualification whereas with something like franchise cricket ipl whatever caribbean premier league hundred you can actually put together in theory with the use of data you can put together your what you think is your perfect team or well, your fantasy team in a way it, it, that's what it is it's almost like the real version of fantasy cricket because you can pick from anywhere. I mean, obviously, auctions are restricted a bit now because some teams in various leagues have retention policies and keep certain players back, so you can't buy them. But if essentially, the, the, the market is quite an open one, and the more statistic you have at your disposal, the more accurate you can be about who you need. And I just think it's it's what it's one of the reasons why domestic sports, and you know, in this case, cricket, is is the one is the area that that the media rights uh, the big tech giants and uh, private equity firms are kind of salivating over to buy into because you're matching up the best players from all over the world against each other more times than you are in international cricket in international cricket you're reliant as we talked about in the first half of this program you're reliant on who's available in your country and if you haven't got too many talented players available, you're going to get mismatches or people who are injured or whatever. And you can't suddenly, as Nathan Lehman said, you can't, because England are a bit short on pace, they can't suddenly call up Kagize Rabada and say, right, you know, come and play for us in the Ashes. But you can in, in the IPL or in the Caribbean Premier League or whatever. You know, if you sort of see, find, you know, talented players that perhaps haven't been tapped up from somewhere, you can hire them and it enables you to um in the actual match situations data enables you to 
to pit the best person against that prime opponent, you know, at that right time. So it's kind of heightening the the pressure on individual players because they're up against their ideal challenger more often instead of waiting for the moment when Jimmy Anderson bowls a Virat Kohli and kind of feeling the the excitement of, of that duel and then you know it sort of dissipates a bit when lesser players are, are against each other in domestic the, the highest form of domestic sport like the IPL mm. you're getting absolutely hot shot players against their you know almost um most dreaded opponent in that particular team and you're getting that sequence you know potentially throughout the match until later in the game obviously when you've got lower order players but so i think it's one of the reasons why the game has improved so much through these domestic leagues because you're pitting the best players against each other more often so actually, so what you're saying, in a way, data is undermining international sport. But could you have a situation where people say, "Well, I love I love my Test cricket, and I don't like T20 is all right, but it's you know it's 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 chocolate cake as opposed to a three course meal." You actually, so what you're saying could could data then give us really sort of intense first class cricket, intense Test matches inverted commas five day games between if you could if you could ha- have teams that are around the based around the world so you could have a you know a london team against a mumbai team that have all that have been selected using data and they're actually test matches in, in a way in an ideal world would that be a, a, a better way to go rather than having international sport it's quite an interesting idea and uh, I, I guess you know the champions league in football is a bit like that mm. isn't it because you're getting uh, you know the best international players playing for one domestic team against another and uh, you know that's why that's why all the kind of uh, the smart money's on on that sort of tournament. Um, I mean, I think we're going to see this. By the way, in future soon, there'll be, and, and I've just heard some whispers around the, the, the circuit that there'll be a sort of Champions Trophy for cricket, and it might be the T10 format. In fact, um, but again, it will be something where you know the best team from the English hundred or if there's a T10 tournament in England in the future uh, against the best Indian team from their, from that, from their tournament and the best South African team. And you will be able to, you know, kind of kind of um, draft in players uh, for, for those tournaments. So, you know, it's, again, it's heightening the intensity mm. of those contests. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the one, the only issue with that sort of tournament is that if you, because of the nature of franchise cricket, is that you know someone like Rashid Khan plays for about five different teams. Yeah. Who who does so who yes. does he play for in your your T10 team? So Whoever ha- plays the most, I suppose. I, don't well, know. I mean, well, you're, well, you're that, quite that's, right. That's that's absolutely right. It's, yeah. That is a problem. And that's where you get actually. You talk about the Champions League football. That's sort of where you get those inequities as well, or inequalities, because you know you have five or six very, very, very rich clubs who do hoover up all the best players. So actually, in cricket, in football, you don't really get that because it's all about financial muscle. Whereas I, you know, one of the one of the models in the IPL. Okay, there is there is a financial element to the IPL, but the the draft, the, the you know the auction is supposed to try to even things out, and that's done you know that done deliberately to try to even the standards, so you don't get those 
those mismatches. So you're, you're manufacturing rather than it, it developing sort of embryonically, you know, you have a period in football where, I don't know, Manchester United dominated for a few years, didn't they? And now they're not so dominant. Manchester City are up there and Chelsea and what and Liverpool, you know, so you, you have little eras, whereas mm. the IPL model is, is meant to sort of stop that happening. So anyway, well, we're going to see that we're going to see the use more and more of data. Will, will we will we see that as, as as viewers, as spectators, or will we just go along and have just enjoy the match? You know, will will we be aware of all the well? That's a good question. That's gone into yeah, that's a very good question, and I think um, I think we will. But obviously, it's it's a personal choice. You might not want it. Uh, it was interesting actually sitting in Sharjah in the stadium in Sharjah with some American investors in uh, the IPL who'd come over for to see a few games. And that's, by the way, why Billy Bean is involved, because he's involved with an investment company that have bought into some some IPL franchises, uh, because the Americans are getting more and more interested in, in cricket, because, A, cricket is starting to emerge in the States, and they're going to have their own league, their own T20 league, either next year or the year after. They're already adapting certain old baseball grounds to to fit with cricket. And secondly, um, you know, they're interested in this whole sort of technology and data and so on, and how uh, it's more and more closely aligned, as Billy Bean said, with the gambling world, with the betting world, which has opened up in the States as well. And uh, it was just interesting sitting with these uh, American investors, and they just said, look, this stadium is is terrible. You know, we're sitting in plastic, hot plastic seats. We're being overcome by fumes from some petrol um generator gen- generator below us um we can't see the big screen it's so small anyway it's hardly it's barely relevant we can't see the scoreboard there's hardly any information there's no food you know it was whereas the americans are used to i don't know the, the at&t stadium in dallas where you know everything you can sort of shave in the the, the floors because it's so beautifully marble and part and polished and you know pizza is delivered to your seat which is air conditioned and you've got a 50 meter big screen suspended from the ceiling showing every move in all its detail and so part of that is in the future i think stadiums do have to improve to give the viewers the the spectators a better experience uh cricket wise uh, to ape you know what you get in american sport in the meantime, that data and, and extra information will be available to broadcasters, and I think they should make more use of them, and to you know people on their phones who can get secondary um, feeds of, of all that stuff. So it will be a personal choice, but I think in the future, hopefully, for the spectator's sake, you will get a better experience in a stadium with more uh, information, better big screen scoreboards etc and that kind of information that data will be there for everyone to consume final question for this podcast that's a bit scary isn't it (laughs) (laughs) well i say final question go to a maths lesson when you're watching cricket really well that well that actually it's an interesting point isn't it about how much you know spectators go to enjoy and how much you go to um sort of analyze the game and say you know he or she shouldn't be bowling to to him or her, or that, you know, they should have the field there because I've seen a, a spreadsheet which says, you know, 75% of the balls go in that area or whatever. Um, or whether you just go, oh, what a good shot that was. He's just whacked it out of the park. I enjoyed that. And that's what, you know, that's what I've come to watch after work. 
here's my final question for this podcast. <laughs> do, do you think Billy Bean could come up with all his data, could come up with a, an England Ashes squad that would challenge Australia? Or, or is it, is, are the limits there because of uh, who England can pick? I think he could. Yeah, I reckon. I mean, I think by and due, I think Nathan Lehman's pretty good at his job and yeah. so is uh, mm. his support staff. There are other people. In fact, he works primarily on the white ball squads mm. and there are other people in that uh, department who uh, address the, the red ball situation more closely. <laughs> I mean, you could say, is Dominic best? <laughs> you know, has he, is his, do his stats really um, justify his selection? There are two or three questionable ones, but I, I guess that the... the, the uh, the other thing about test cricket, which in a way makes it more more interesting, is the whole thing about character, how it explores your yeah. character as opposed to your data, I suppose, your stats. And um, that is something that the data hasn't yet kind of quite uh, proven. I mean, there are ways now. In fact, I asked Nathan about, you know, assessing character and assessing a player's ability to deal with pressure and things, and they are creating algorithms for evaluating that, but it's still not totally proven. So, I, I, I mean, good luck to Billy Bean finding um, a side for England to win the Ashes. I wouldn't mind never giving him a chance, but I doubt he'd succeed. Yeah, actually, Justin, you touched on Donbass. I mean, I mean one of the, one of the uh, observations about England's Ashes squad has been there's no Matt Parkinson, leg spinner, you know, he's got you know pretty good first-class record, did, did, did pretty well in, in white ball cricket, which is obviously different from from uh, red ball cricket and the Ashes. And they're saying, well, he's like to cause more of a threat than, than Don Best, if Don Best plays, and it may be that he doesn't play at all. But in Nathan Lehman's book, one thing that stands out from Nathan Lehman's book that he wrote with uh, Ben Jones uh, from Crickviz uh, this year is that the longer the game, the least effective leg spinners are. In other words, the shorter the game, T20, the, the more effective they are, the longer the game, the less effective they are. Anyway, that was one of the, the, the sort of learning points. So that may well have, have fed into that decision, but it would be nice to seeing them go there with a, a leg spinner who can, you know, take out two or three wickets in the middle of a sort of flat up, flat pitch afternoon where you know, Australia were, were cruising along. Perhaps that's just uh, us wishful thinking and that, that cricket fan and you wanting something different rather than the actual hard data, which says, no, you'll just go naught for a hundred or whatever, like Mason Crane did when he made his debut in, in Sydney. I think it was naught for 190 or something. Anyway, it was, it was, it was pretty hard work, right? The ashes are coming, but before that, the T20 world cup is coming and it, it starts uh, next Sunday with the big one between Papua New Guinea and Oman, although a you know, fantastic day out for those uh, two teams. Oman have been playing uh, Sri Lanka actually in some, some T20 matches over the last uh, few days. So next time we speak to, we'll be talking about the, the T20 world cup, which is coming. And that, you know, that really is on the day that you know, there's not much room for, for maneuver there, not much room for mistakes. The players are really going to be tested in the, in the next few weeks. And uh, I, I hope it's as good a, tournament as the last one in India when England lost in the final that dramatic <laughs> final and Carlos Brathwaite won the game against Ben Stokes in the final over and uh, Ian Bishop said remember the name Carlos Brathwaite is now more famous as a commentator than he is as a player actually but uh, anyway a nice man too very um, nice man very nice guy uh, so uh, as you say we'll be previewing the World T20 uh, this time next week and also just to say uh, uh, talking of ashes and data and so on our next guest in the world in the world's best cricket club is mike gatting who of course won the the ashes with england in 1986-7 
I'll post on Twitter exactly when that is. Uh, but you can join us by going to worldsbestcricketclub.com in aid of the Professional Cricketers Trust. So hope you can join us for Mike Gatting later this week and for our podcast at the weekend. Thanks for listening. Great. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye for now. Podcast Network. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.